Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We welcome you to the Loving Liberty Radio Network and Colonel um, looking forward to this conversation as we talk about uh, the Constitution as it applies today. And, and uh, there is a process that we have seen play out since it was originally put onto paper um, in which the understanding of what it represented and what it meant seems to have uh, seems to be a little different than, than how it is seen today. Where do we begin this journey? Well, I just say the Constitution as it applies today, and the question is, does it apply today? You know, we had a Ed Meese, who was the Attorney General under Reagan and has been involved in constitutional issues ever since that time, a very strong Christian man, he says that in the old days, that constitutional interpretation moved between strict construction, that is, interpreting the powers delegated to the federal government strictly, and broad construction, that is, interpreting those powers more broadly. And so the question then was, do we give the Constitution strict or broad interpretation? Now it's moved to, do we look to the intent of the framers or do we ignore the intent of the framers? He says, previously the question was how to interpret the Constitution. Now the question is whether to interpret the Constitution. And that brings us to this concept that we hear about so often today, the living Constitution, which sounds like a very attractive phrase. I mean, nobody except... John Eidsmo and maybe Brian Hyde would want a dead constitution. But what they really mean by it is a silly putty constitution that any judge can mold to mean anything he wants. The constitution is really a valid document and is effective in protecting our rights only if we say that its meaning transcends time. And what we need to do is go back to the framers themselves, see how they intended the Constitution, and either follow their interpretation, or if we decide that their interpretation was wrong or that changing times require something different, then amend it. But don't just simply stretch it beyond recognition. Now, the framers' view of the Constitution would be derived primarily from the Bible. In fact, we have seen that the majority of the Founding Fathers were strong professing Christians, Out of those 55 delegates to the convention, about 28 of them were members of the Anglican or Church of England, which was a conservative church in those days. Seven of them were Congregationalists, that's your New England Puritans. Six were Presbyterians, that's your fiery Calvinists. There were two Methodists, two Dutch Reformed. There were two Lutherans, two Roman Catholics one who we just don't know what his beliefs were, and that's McClurg of Virginia. He was buried in an Episcopal churchyard, which suggests probable church membership, but we won't say for sure on that. And that leaves three, three out of 55, that you might say were unorthodox in their religious beliefs. That's about 6%. And so the majority are coming out of a Christian framework. And we also see from a study by Dr. Donald Lutz and a Dr. Charles Heinemann, these gentlemen had researched thousands of documents of leading American political figures writing 
from 1760 to 1805, and the purpose of their study was to identify quotations. And they wanted to see who it was the founding fathers were quoting, who did they respect, where did they get their ideas. They found the Bible accounted for 34% of their quotations. And of the human authors they quoted, well, Baron Montesquieu of France was at the top with his spirit of the laws. Montesquieu was a devout Catholic. Sir William Blackstone was a very close second. And in terms of actual influence, I suggest maybe even above Montesquieu. Blackstone was a devout Anglican. And John Locke, not entirely orthodox, but basically within the Christian camp, would be third. And so founding fathers are coming from this perspective. And they would view law much the way they would view truth itself. And they would have a Christian perspective on what truth is. So what is truth? Well, we look to the Old Testament, and there the Hebrew word that is used for truth, the word emeth, means that which is fixed, that which is unchanging, that which stands the test of time. And then in the New Testament, the Greek word for truth there is aletheia, and again, having that meaning of that which is fixed and that which stands. But truth here is also identified with Jesus Christ. And we see, for example, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't just say, I am a truth. He doesn't just say, I will show you the truth. He says, I am the truth. And not only that, but... In Hebrews 13, we read concerning Jesus that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if Jesus is truth, and if Jesus doesn't change, then it follows that truth doesn't change. They would derive this view of truth from the Bible. They would also derive it in part from Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton living from 1642 to 1727, was a scientist who developed various laws of nature, like, for example, the laws of physics, the laws of gravity, and the like. And a man who believed that the universe operates according to fixed, absolute, unchanging laws. The laws of chemistry, the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, gravity, and the like and that these laws do not change because they are ordained by God. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton was a very strong Christian man. He wrote a great deal about the Bible, and in fact, one area of special fascination for him was Bible prophecy, and he wrote very extensively on Bible prophecy. But between the Bible and Sir Isaac Newton, the framers would agree that truth is a fixed concept, and that law reflects God's truth. And so their understanding of the Constitution then was that it should be interpreted according to these fixed absolutes of God's truth. For example, they, they would look to Sir William Blackstone to get their interpretations of law and Blackstone would say to them, for example, that God, who at diverse times has created the world and so on, and has fixed the world with 
and created matter out of nothing, he impressed certain principles upon that matter from which it can never depart and without which it would cease to be. So God wrote laws of nature into nature. And so this will of God, he says, is called the law of nature. And not only does this include physical laws for the governance of nature, but also moral laws for the governance of man. But he goes on to say that besides these laws of nature, there are also laws of Scripture. He said that sometimes because of man's finite nature and because of his fallen state, man needs to get it in writing. And so God revealed things in the Scripture. And so he says that these laws of Scripture, he says, are found only, law, the revealed laws, he calls it, is found only in the Holy Scriptures. And he goes on to say that upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, depend all human laws. That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. Likewise, the other whom the Founding Fathers quoted very extensively was Baron Montesquieu of France, and Baron Montesquieu, in his Spirit of the Laws, talked about how God had made all sorts of laws for the governance of the universe, and also moral laws for the governance of man. He says, before laws were made, there were relations of possible justice. To say that there is nothing just or unjust, but what is commanded or forbidden by positive laws is the same as saying that before the describing of a circle, all the radii were not equal. But he says, nature follows God's laws perfectly. But he says the intelligent world, by which he means us, I think, the intelligent world is far from being so well governed as the physical. It says, first of all, we don't understand all of God's moral laws, so we don't follow them. But because of our depraved nature, we don't even follow the laws that we understand. And so God has had to give us human government and to impose laws in order to restrain us. But law, they would say, is based on that higher law of God. And that's the founding's under, founders' understanding of law and their understanding of the Constitution. Balance of Nature's Fruits and Vegetables in a Capsule, changing the world one life at a time. You guys, your customer service and everything, you guys are great. And the commercials talk about it, but I don't know if it really gives it true justice. People need to know, this is maybe the most amazing product I've ever tried. It's so pure, it tastes so good, I'm just blown away by it. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code... USA. At the American Veterinary Medical Association annual convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in animals. There's more valuable information at AVMA. 
The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. And I just have- Awesome and amazing day, friends. It's John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health. You've been hearing our messages for a while. You've heard Wayne Allen Root and his extraordinary testimony of what's been going on. And women, if you have a husband that is struggling or needs a loving nudge, I encourage you to nudge him off the couch and go check out our masterclass on our website, including the amazing testimonials. And these testimonials are just real people. They're not famous or high-level production. This is real people. People talking on their iPhone, people sitting across from their spouse. They share their real story for the past 23 years. Tens of thousands of people reversing arthritis, diabetes, high blood pressure, neck pain, back pain, migraine headaches, brain fog, lots of challenging things. Be a beautiful, beloved skeptic. And come check us out at EnergizedHealth.com. That's EnergizedHealth.com. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with uh, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And uh, Colonel, I'm loving this this background information that we're getting on uh, some of the fountains from which the, the founding generation, the framers of the Constitution, drew their knowledge and their understanding of the past and their philosophy to, to craft what they hoped would be a, a good, responsive form of government. Exactly, and... As we saw, the framers coming out of a biblical perspective and coming out of a perspective of science with Sir Isaac Newton believed in a universe of absolute laws and a moral world of absolute God-given laws, and that the truth of the Constitution, the words of the Constitution, were to reflect those principles of the laws of nature and of nature's God. And believing that law is fixed and absolute and unchanging and God-ordained, they believed the Constitution especially was to be interpreted in that light. James Madison, who we often call the father of the Constitution, wrote that if the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation be not the guide in expounding it, there can be no security for a faithful exercise of its powers. Now, there is, unless we're looking to the sense of the founders when they drafted the Constitution, if that no longer governs, then where do you go? You can go anywhere. And so Jefferson, who we often call the father of the Declaration of Independence, who was not at the convention, but who was president during a formative period of constitutional history, wrote, the Constitution on which our union rests shall be administered by me according to the safe and honest meaning 
contemplated by the plain understanding of the people of the United States at the time of its adoption. And on another occasion, Jefferson wrote concerning the Constitution, on every question of construction, let us carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted. Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates, and instead of trying what meaning may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one in which it was passed. George Washington, who served as our first president and who chaired the Constitutional Convention, put it like this in his farewell address, if in the opinion of the people, the distribution or modification of the constitutional powers be at any particular wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in the way the Constitution designates. Washington believed that, as he said when the convention began, let us raise a standard to which the wise and the honest may repair. The event is in the hand of God. He believed God had a hand in guiding their deliberations, but he wouldn't say that they were infallible, nor would he say that future generations might decide that might not decide that changing circumstances might require some change. So if there's going to be a change, he says, let it be by an amendment. That's why we put in Article 5 for amendment. And he says, but let there be no change by usurpation. Though this may in one instance be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. Unfortunately, I think we've moved a long way away from the Founder's understanding of God, the Founding's understanding of truth, of law, and of the Constitution, and let's just see how we've moved toward a, another view of constitutional interpretation because of a changing view of truth itself. <clears throat> Jean-Jacques Rousseau would be the first we would look at, a French philosopher who lived from 1712 to 1778, who rejected the concept of human sin, rather he stressed that man is basically good. And his famous statement was, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. And so what we need to do is to get back to the state of nature and become like the noble savage. And he viewed then the state not as a covenant that people put together by which they delegate to the government certain powers, but the state is an organism that grows and is the supreme representative of the people and all other organizations, including even the church, are merely subsidiaries of the state and can be regulated by the state. Another is George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel lives from 1770 to 1831. And Hegel, the founder of what we call the dialectic, the idea that truth is not absolute, not unchanging, Rather, truth is a changing process. But, for example, we have a thesis, a basic idea for one age, and then an antithesis, a contrary idea, like maybe if our thesis is capitalism, the antithesis, communism, arises, and in the conflict between them, well, the best of both went out, and so we have democratic socialism as the synthesis, which becomes the new thesis, and another antithesis arises to that, and so truth changes with time. Another thinker that we need to put into the play here is August Comte, who lived 
until 1857, Comte we call the father of positivism. And by positivism, what we mean is that the only kind of truth that is really worth knowing is that which can be empirically verified. For example, if I bang on this lectern here, what I'm doing is I'm empirically verifying its existence. I have seen it. I have touched it. I have felt it. I have heard it. And so by my senses, I know this exists. And that's the only way we can know anything. That other things like freedom or human rights, human dignity, equality, even God, Comte would say, I'm not saying that they exist, and I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm simply saying that those concepts are meaningless because they cannot be empirically verified. So out the window with concepts like divine law, natural law, natural rights, they're meaningless. And then Darwin comes along living to 1883, and popularizes the evolutionary model with his origin of species, and really ties in a lot of the Hegelian dialectic here, that things are changing, and they're changing through a process of natural selection. Herbert Spencer, who lives from 1820 to 1903, who basically takes Darwin's ideas and makes them into a philosophy and a worldview, and out of that arises what we call legal positivism. We see this at the beginning with Christopher Columbus Langdell, who was the dean of the law school at Harvard in the 1870s, and who pioneered a theory called legal positivism, and five basic points of legal positivism. Number one, there are no divine absolutes, or if there are, they're irrelevant to the system today. Number two, since there are no divine absolutes, law is simply man-made. Law is law because the highest human authority, the state, has set it as law and has the muscle to back it up. And three, law evolves as man evolves. If there's no God to keep things straight, then law is just going to change. And as man evolves, so his laws are going to evolve. Judges guide the evolution of law by writing their decisions. And therefore, to study law by the scientific method, we go to the decisions of judges. If you go to law school today, rather than what you would have done originally by studying statutes, studying treatises like Blackstone and Kant and others, today, the majority of what you do in law school is read the decisions of judges. We call that the case law method of legal study <clears throat> because that is the actual source of law. And so from this, then, we come to a reading of the Constitution by which we're free to create new rights that were not originally found there. We're free to water down rights that are there. And a whole new view that we call the living Constitution, which is what we're going to look at right after the break.
again. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you were walking us uh, through some of the history behind how how we regard the laws. Uh, very interesting how case law is uh, is pretty much you know as you were mentioning you know the study of law becomes a study of case law or what judges have said. Does this differ greatly from what what the founders intended, or is this uh, is this something that they had built into the system? It's something that has been built into the system. Of course, we didn't study case law nearly as much back in the early days of our republic because there wasn't as much case law to study. In fact, when you look to the opinions of the Supreme Court in those days, they were much shorter opinions, and they were citing sources like Blackstone and other sources like this. Today, when you read the decisions of federal judges today, most of their decisions are made up of citing other federal judges, and they in turn write their opinions by citing earlier federal judges and so on. And so it's just a continuing process like this. I even have a theory that the computer system that we have right now with the cut and paste feature is one of the reasons that legal opinions are so much longer today than they used to be. Rather than editing a source that you're going to quote, you just simply cut and paste it into your opinion, and you have a longer opinion. But as I say, today, you look to the way law is studied in as people are in law school. Primarily, they're studying the decisions of judges. And if you read the decisions of judges, <clears throat> they themselves are primarily citing the decisions of other judges. Now, somebody that once prophesied this living constitution approach was Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson wrote a book titled The New Freedom. He was president during World War I, of course, and he wrote this book back in 1914. But in this book, he says that the constitution was made under the dominion of the Newtonian theory. And that's why you see checks and balances in the Constitution, and the Constitution is sort of like a model of the solar system, where you see these branches and levels of government revolving around each other and being held together in their orbits by checks and balances. But he says that living constitutions must be Darwinian. He says the Constitution falls under the theory of organic life, and it is accountable to Darwin not to Newton. And he says that living constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice. All the progressives ask or desire is permission in an era when development, evolution is the scientific word, to interpret the constitution according to the Darwinian principle. All they ask is recognition of the fact that a nation is a living thing and not a machine. Well, one of the results of this is we see decisions in which the Supreme Court talks about an evolving standard. Furman versus Georgia is one example of this, a 1972 decision. It involved the constitutionality of capital punishment as it was practiced in Georgia at that time. And there were nine separate opinions written in the case. Five of these said that it is unconstitutional, but for different reasons. Two of the justices, Brennan and Marshall, said that the capital punishment is unconstitutional under all circumstances today because it is cruel and unusual. 
under the Eighth Amendment. Now, I'm not trying to get into the issue whether we believe or don't believe in capital punishment. The point I'm making out of this is that that's not what the framers believed. They, with very few exceptions, believed in capital punishment. And in fact, at the same time, they adopted the cruel and unusual punishment provision of the Eighth Amendment. They also adopted the Fifth Amendment, which twice refers to and sanctions capital punishment. So it's hard to think that they intended that capital punishment be considered cruel and unusual. But that doesn't bother Brennan and Marshall. Rather, they say the meaning of the amendment is not fixed and static. Rather, it must draw its meaning from the evolving standard of decency that marks the progress of a maturing society. In other words, even though capital punishment was acceptable by that primitive and barbaric standard of 1789, it is cruel and unusual by the humane and enlightened standard of today. Well, that's the approach to constitutional interpretation that is certainly taught in the majority of our law schools today. There are some law schools that would say otherwise, but that's, and some law professors who would say otherwise, but that's pretty much the majority view, the living constitution approach. And people will mouth out just saying, what an attractive idea this is, that the constitution should be a living document and we need to reinterpret it. Well, I'm gonna to suggest to you that I think there are some very serious dangers as we look to this living constitution approach. It has had its advocates, and besides Langdell, Langdell's successor as dean at Harvard was Roscoe Pound, and he probably did more to articulate and advance the theory that Langdell did. Their star pupil was Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who was one of the best writers ever to serve on the Supreme Court, but who also certainly followed this living constitution approach that is a very dangerous approach. And anyway, so I'm gonna to suggest to you that there are some very serious dangers in the living constitution approach. And one of the first of these is that under this approach, human rights are not secure. In fact, under this approach, the assumption seems to be that we are always evolving toward a greater recognition of human dignity and human rights, but there's no guarantee that history is always going to move in that direction. It could just as easily move in the opposite direction, toward a new age of barbarism, and that punishments that our founding fathers would have thought cruel and unusual Punishments like skinning somebody alive or drawing and quartering or other punishments like this, that these would become acceptable in an age in which we are much more tolerant of violence, much less respectful toward human life and human dignity than we are today. And so history could just as easily move downward toward a new age of barbarism, and much of the 20th century would indicate a movement in that direction. And there is no guarantee at all that judges are always going to be more enlightened and forward-looking than the rest of the population. A lot of the idea here was that judges, well, they're more philosophical. They're, they have more time, more leisure to think about things and to reflect on things 
and they're going to be ahead of the rest of the population and their understanding of human rights. And they're going to be kind of like the philosopher kings that Plato spoke about. But are they? Well, Alexander Bickel, Harvard Law professor, once said the judges have the time and the leisure to be philosophers like this. Well, Robert Bork, who wrote extensively about this and had been a Harvard professor as well, but unlike Bickel, had actually served on the federal bench, he said, other than to heave a wistful sigh, I will pass by this vision of a judge's life without comment. Judges are so busy that they don't have more time to reflect than most of the rest of us. And so I would argue that the fixed standard of the Constitution is a far better guarantee of human rights than any evolving standard, which really means when we say an evolving standard, we really mean by this, the evolving standard not of the public as a whole, but the evolving standard of unelected federal judges. Justice Scalia had some very interesting comments about this. And we'll talk about those in the next hour as we look to Obergefell's, as to Scalia's dissent in Obergefell. That was the 2015 decision by which the Supreme Court held that there is a constitutional right to same-sex marriage by a 5-4 margin. But at any rate, some very interesting dissents written in that case, one by Chief Justice Roberts, where he said that the thing to be noted about this decision, it has nothing to do with the Constitution, because the Constitution says nothing about same-sex marriage. But the writer of the opinion, Justice Kennedy, had said that the framers, when they spoke about liberty, didn't define the term. They intended to leave that to us, the future generations. That's where Scalia steps in and has a real field day when he says, this isn't an evolving morality of people. It's an evolving morality of federal judges, and not just unelected federal judges, but a five-vote majority of the nine unelected judges on this court. More later. and pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
Awesome and amazing day. Hey there, friends. It's John and Chelsea Jubilee. And today we have a message for you women out there. Are you premenopausal, postmenopausal, or maybe you're in the middle of menopause right now? Ouch. Listen, we have thousands of clients that have reported reversing all of their symptoms of menopause. Or maybe you have thyroid imbalances. Same thing for those women. Listen, this is your time. Absolutely. You can reverse all of those symptoms and you can be your real joyful, exuberant, and lean self again. Ladies, I don't care if six doctors told you you can't lose that fat after menopause or in menopause. You can. We have done it hundreds and hundreds of times, even in a medical setting, documented. So make your action call today. Log on to EnergizeHealth.com, EnergizeHealth.com, or call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. The following are real life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. Welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, uh, you're talking about a case, or you were as we, as we ended the last segment, that uh, actually probably is familiar to a lot of folks. This is within very recent memory. Uh, the Obergefell versus, I forget who the second Hodges. party is, Hodges, Hodges case, mm-hmm. which uh, legalized same-sex marriage. Exactly. And did so supposedly based on the term liberty in the 5th and 14th Amendments. But as we said, Justice Kennedy said, this is not defined by the Founding Fathers, so they left that definition to us, those of future generations. And Scalia says, you mean a five-vote majority of us, the nine unelected justices of the Supreme Court? We are not representative of the nation as a whole because we weren't elected by them. We aren't even representative of the legal profession. We aren't even representative of federal judges, he says. You take a look at us, the nine of us, every one of us, now this has changed since then, but at the time he wrote that, every one of us comes from one of two law schools, Harvard and Yale. Number two, we are concentrated in the Northeast. There is not a single Southerner on the Supreme Court. There is not a single Midwesterner on the Supreme Court. There is not a single Westerner on the Supreme Court. Then he puts in parentheses, California does not count. And he said, the framers believe there should be no taxation without representation. But he says, we have something worse. What we have right now is social transformation without representation. And that is not at all what the Founding Fathers intended. Another danger of this approach is that it leads to big government, 
through strained interpretations of the general welfare clause, the interstate commerce clause, the necessary and proper clause, and others that we've talked about. The courts have opened the door to vast expansions of the size and the scope of the government at all levels, but especially of the federal government. When we think that in 1789, the federal government under President Washington had 350 federal civilian employees and a federal budget of $690,000. By 1832, the budget was only 11 million. In 1995, it was 1.5 trillion. I'm not even sure what it is today, but 1.5 trillion a day, that would just be a portion of one appropriation today. But at any rate, so we see how the size and scope of the government has just expanded way, way beyond what the founding fathers intended. And that's because we have adopted this living constitution approach that has given this evolving interpretation to the provisions of the constitution that were intended to limit federal power. Another point to note here is that if we are going to deny the existence of divine law, or that the Constitution is absolute, time-honored guarantees, then there is no such thing as an unjust law. If all law is, is what the highest human authority, the state, through its agency, the Supreme Court has said, then there can be no such thing as an unjust law. Constitution, well, the Constitution could be changed, or rewritten, or simply made into what Thomas Jefferson called a ball of wax. It leads to judicial tyranny. Hamilton argued that the judiciary is the least dangerous branch of government because its powers are limited to interpreting the laws and constitution. And others saw it that way too. Felix Frankfurter believed that we have to stick with what the framers intended. He once wrote, what governs is the constitution and not what we have written about it. In other words, our decisions have to be subservient to the actual words of the Constitution. Chief Justice Rehnquist said, no amount of repetition of historical errors in judicial opinions can make the errors true. However, we've gone beyond that. And the result of this is what Chancellor Kemp said, that when judges are not bound by the plain wording of the Constitution, they are free to roam at large in the trackless fields of their own imaginations, which is exactly what's happening today. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes once said, although he was governor of New York when he said this, we are under a constitution, but the constitution is what the judges say it is. Now, if he had said the constitution must be interpreted the way the justices say it must be interpreted, that'd be another matter. But when he says, the Constitution is what the judges say it is. That is a very dangerous view of the Constitution, a very dangerous view of law, and a very dangerous view of truth. It reminds me of Lewis Carroll, and remember in Through the Looking Glass, this conversation between Alice and Humpty Dumpty, when Humpty Dumpty says, now there's a knockdown, drag-out argument for you, and Alice questions what that means, and he says, when I use a word, it means exactly what I want it to mean, nothing more and nothing less. And Alice says, the question is whether you can make words mean different things. And Humpty Dumpty answers, the question is, 
who is to be master, that is all. And he is right. If judges are free to make the words of the Constitution mean whatever they want them to mean, then they have become our masters. And that is not the form of government that the Founding Fathers established, and I don't think it's the form of government that most Americans want today. Lino Grawley, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Texas, once put it this way. He said, judicial usurpation of legislative power has become so common and so complete that the Supreme Court has become our most powerful and important instrument of government in terms of determining the nature and quality of American life. Questions literally of life and death, like abortion and capital punishment, are all now in the hands of judges under the guise of questions of constitutional law. The fact that the Constitution says nothing of abortion, and indeed explicitly and repeatedly recognizes the capital punishment the court has come close to prohibiting, has made no difference. The result, in this sentence I think is especially significant, the result is that the central truth of constitutional law today is that it has nothing to do with the Constitution, except that the words due process or equal protection are almost used by the judges in stating their conclusion. Constitutional law, Professor Gralia says, has become a fraud, a cover for a system of government by the majority vote of a nine-person committee of lawyers, unelected, and holding office for life. And with only a very slight exaggeration, that is a very accurate description of the Supreme Court. With this living constitution, we've even gone beyond this. We've gone beyond even what we would call the living constitution and what we would call legal positivism to say that, as some have said, that the Supreme Court is a continuing constitutional convention and that its decisions are on a par of equal authority with the Constitution itself. They find new rights, and as they look for rights like abortion or same-sex marriage and so on, they say that, well, these are found in the penumbras and emanations of the Constitution, which really mean that they've been given a set of colored glasses by which they can read anything they want there as they see all these emanations flowing out that say what they want them to say. We've moved beyond legal positivism toward a school of law that we call legal realism. Legal realism just argues that since no divine absolutes exist, then the legal system should stop pretending to be neutral and objective and should instead openly work to advance certain causes and certain clients that it favors, that we should abandon even the appearance of objectivity. We go beyond that to what we call today the critical legal studies movement, which is part of what we call critical race theory. But you recall, we've talked about this before, that cultural Marxism advanced what we call this critical race theory, that all history and all politics needs to be viewed in terms of a struggle between oppressors and oppressed, and we need to always be on the side of the oppressed. And critical legal studies says that the legal system should be openly partial to those who are oppressed, and several categories of oppressed would include those who are economically poor, 
those of minority races, those of repressed sexes. I put that plural because they'll say there are many different sexes here, you know, all that sort of thing. The alien, other people like this, but all of that means objectivity and fairness and equal protection in the legal system is gone. And we need to get away from this living constitution and back to the enduring constitution that our founding fathers gave us. Thank you.